0: And Julian has been imprisoned over this for four and a half years. He's not being held in the UK over anything else. He's not charged in the UK. He's just being held in in the highest security prison on behalf of the United States, who are denying him bail and who are happy to keep him imprisoned indefinitely or until uh, he's extradited to the US because of what he published.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the collection of money. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C dot com. Stella Assange, welcome to the What Is Money show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: It's very nice to have you. Uh, It's been a long time coming. And um, just by way of quick introduction, you are the wife of Julian Assange. And you are working full time on the campaign to free Julian Assange who is the founder of WikiLeaks. Um, and I thought today we would go into a bit of the history of WikiLeaks, you know, things, uh, what it is, uh, what um, things it revealed to the world, um, and talk about your involvement in uh, in Julian's case uh, since he was uh, arrested in the wake of WikiLeaks. Um, but before we dive into that maybe we could just talk a little bit about you you know how you and julian met how you got involved um and just your background and journey into this uh current occupation of of campaigning to free your husband
0: uh okay so let's see where where do i begin maybe with my personal background before i met julian um so i'm I'm 40. I was born in 1983. And and I don't really identify with this like Gen X stuff. Um, I truly am rooted in kind of the the Cold War era. Mm. And I was born in South Africa, um, but my parents were living in Botswana and in Lesotho, which is in Southern Africa. Uh, And I was there until I was eight. And, And these were um wonderful places but also um not at the you know cutting edge of of development and technology or anything like that Mm. so in a way i feel a little bit like i experienced the 70s because um my early memories are quite kind of i i relate to the 70s a little bit Mm. um aesthetically and so on um and politically so my parents were involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. my dad was an urban planner in Botswana. Um, my mom's a theater director. Uh, they were involved with the political exiles leaving that were leaving South Africa, blacks and whites, and uh, who were politically involved. and And they got politically involved and used their art to kind of um, fight for uh, equal rights of of blacks and whites in South Africa. Uh, and then. We moved to Europe. We moved to Sweden initially. I went to school in Sweden for seven years, and then we moved to Spain, and then I moved to England and went to university, studied law and politics, Um, and I was kind of, um, my view of the world was, I wouldn't say naive, I just think it was less sophisticated than it's become, (laughs) Um, and... I really felt like I was uh, i I really felt like I was in the twenty first century once mm. I got involved in Julian's case, because mm. Julian really was a pioneer um, in terms of journalism, but in all sorts of areas. And I came at it from an international law perspective, mm. from a kind of international relations perspective. And this was really a game changer because what it did was even the um, um, the information um, inequality that had existed historically up until that point, uh, you know, the internet brought in the possibility for, um, you know, one, one person to communicate potentially to the whole world. Mm-hmm. And so, um, if you think of information in terms of power, uh, this is a real game changer. Mm. If you can get truly impactful information out uh, to the world in an instant um, then uh, the you know the the, the uh, gatekeeping um, that had existed for you know uh, because of the... Uh, material impossibilities of that happening previously—that um, was just a thing of the past. Mm. And um, so WikiLeaks really kind of ushered in an entirely new era for mm. journalism, for you know, for law, for for history, and for all sorts of things. So jo- WikiLeaks is much big and bigger than just journalism. Um, which is often, you know, because, because of the case there is against Julian, and of course we'll get into that, Mm. um, it's a, it has a, a major, um, a terrible impact on the ability to publish freely, Mm. um, it criminalizes journalism, the way, um, the US administration has deployed, um, their criminal statutes, mm. literally criminalizes journalism. Uh, but I think it's quite a narrow lens through which to look at WikiLeaks. Um, mm. It kind of uh, ushered in a completely new era, um, just at the same time, or more or less the same time um, as the, as basically uh, Bitcoin or Bitcoin, the idea of Bitcoin and the early development of Bitcoin um, and you know Satoshi's white paper and all that, it all came about around the same time. WikiLeaks mm-hmm. was established in 2006. It was up and running in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the really big major leaks came in uh, 2010 mm-hmm. and I got involved in 2011, so in 2011 um, I joined his legal team, and um, there were multiple cases going on at the time. Um, there was a extradition um, case to Sweden, um, and then there was the U.S. investigation that was going on in the background that actually preceded the Swedish mm. um, extradition request. And anyway, so that's the context in which... I got involved. And uh, when I first met Julian, he was a public figure. Obviously, um, he had already published the collateral murder video um, Uh. and the Iraq war logs, the Afghan war diaries, uh, the U.S. State Department cables and the Guantanamo files. And so um, he was at the height of his um, um, being a public figure. Uh, and over time, I got to know him i uh got to experience from you know from the inside how uh the propaganda machine the the smears the attacks, and so on uh were deployed against him, and I learned a lot in the process about you know all sorts of things about. How the media works, Mm -hmm. um, about, uh, power, about, um, about, uh, who your friends are.
1: Quite the journey you've been on, no doubt. Um, and to echo your earlier point, it is, I guess this is somewhat natural that we move from a more naive view of the world when we're younger, uh, to one that becomes more sophisticated with experience. Although you perhaps have gone, um, quite into the crucible in that learning curve uh seeing a lot of these these things up close like the propaganda and the power as you mentioned and so yeah i guess what's going on here like what are we living through um i i guess my perspective would be that you know the state is basically a mafia that parades itself as a human rights organization and we've moved from a world where there are just a few distribution channels for information into one where basically every individual can be a broadcaster, as you said. So there's, you know, as many people as there are potential distribution channels for information. That's a totally new media paradigm and that's much more difficult to contain for the state. And so I guess it seems like we're living through this shift in media paradigm where the state is struggling to contain, uh, the new technological landscape through censorship and other means. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it seems like a bright future in the long run, but the inter, the middle ground is very uncertain and people at the forefront like Julian have sort of taken the arrows in the back, so to speak, um, pioneering this new domain. So, um, My hat is off to you for all the work uh, you have done to support your husband and his endeavors. Uh, I think many people in our space really look up to him and what he's done. And um, uh, so maybe we could talk a bit about WikiLeaks itself for those that may not know. So WikiLeaks is a nonprofit media organization that, as you said, was founded in 2006. Um, They released a number of... A great deal of information that was basically kept from the public view that um, things that the state and governments did not necessarily want people to know about, um, which included a lot of violations of human rights and civil liberties by various governments. Uh, One that you mentioned was the July 12th, 2007 Baghdad airstrike. uh, I forgot the the name you used for this. That it became known as. Um, I'm sorry. Clateral. What is it? Yeah, the collateral murder videos. So this was um, showed a crew firing on a group of people. This is in uh, during the invasion of Iraq, um, and they killed two Reuters journalists. Then they laughed at some of the casualties, all of which were civilians. And there was an anonymous US military official that confirmed the authenticity of the footage. And this provoked a global discussion on the legality and morality of the attacks. Um, that's Again, that's just sort of one example of, of what WikiLeaks released. Um, this may be sort of, this, the answer to this question may be somewhat obvious, but I want to ask it anyways for the audience. Why is it that WikiLeaks was so universally reviled by governments? Um, isn't this just simply investigative journalism at its finest and what we would expect to as a necessary component of holding governments to account for their actions?
0: Well, yes, it's, it's journalism in its purest form. And I think um, something, the, uh, Look Wikileaks was at the time uh, a new a new player um and was competing and uh, uh, not just competing with but doing the job of journalism a lot mm. better and in a much more in fact, impactful manner than um all the big players that had been there, you know, the New York times, the guardian and so on. Um, not only was it getting better leaks, but it was willing to publish those leaks. Um, and with, with, um, the impact was so clear that there have been policy consequences as a result. Uh, I think the, 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 the fear from governments is the, uh, the courage of the organization and of Julian personally to to uh, take on that mantle to uh, say that WikiLeaks would publish the information as long as it was newsworthy, as long as it was suppressed, as long as it was it showed some kind of um, public importance, legal importance, newsworthiness, uh, diplomatic importance, and so on. Uh, it's actually the only. Uh, media organization, at least at the time, that made public its publishing cr- criteria. Because as we know, of course, um the New York Times does not state when it will publish and when it won't. Mm. It, it, it claims that it will publish, you know, newsworthy information. Uh you look at the New York New York Times or The Guardian, especially the Guardian website. I I have a joke by the way concerning the Guardian website. Um, which I will share with you because I think it's, um, it's actually quite true. Um, my joke is that I read The Guardian, which I actually don't. I read The Guardian because I don't want to have to pay for a Cosmopolitan. And a lot of the content in The Guardian nowadays is um, virtually um, impossible to distinguish from a Cosmopolitan uh, magazine. Mm um it's you know uh, human interest um women's uh interest um most of all and of course so what is the publishing criteria for the guardian and well, clearly it's to drive traffic um it's to um, be able to show to their advertisers that they drive traffic um and the newsworthiness or the type of criteria that WikiLeaks states on its website is is uh, nowhere to be found, and it has never been there. Oh. That's not to say that they don't have newsworthy stories ever, but um, WikiLeaks had a different approach. And so WikiLeaks itself, when it um, broke onto the world stage with these incredible um, leaks, um, demonstrating through its work, that uh, Mm. its worthiness, Mm. because it would publish one big thing. And of course, that would attract more sources of of high value, of high quality. Um, And WikiLeaks has never uh, disclosed a source, unlike, um, well, unlike many other organizations, WikiLeaks has managed to always protect their sources. Of course, we know that uh, Chelsea Manning... um, was convicted over her um, leaking to WikiLeaks, but Mm. that was because um, she inadvertently uh, confessed basically to someone who betrayed her and Mm. informed the FBI, Um, Mm. not someone inside WikiLeaks, but um, who was working for a a, a different US publication. Mm. So WikiLeaks came onto the scene, And it was a new player. And here's this Australian um, cryptographer, uh, technologist, journalist, people didn't really know how to classify him, except that he did things very differently. Um, And he talked about using encryption and, um, um, you know, all sorts of safety um, steps, with um sorry the use of encryption and of um of operational security mm-hmm. uh for journalists and you know at the time in 2010 when when wikileaks had these um sorry let me say this more clearly <laughs> so when wikileaks came onto the scene uh not only was julian um a newcomer uh an outsider an australian mm-hmm. someone with a tech background a cryptographer someone who talked about operation sec- operational security about u- the use of cryptography um but also uh he was um critical of the way the media had been uh reporting on the WikiLeaks publications, mm. and so the the legacy media viewed Julian as a competitor and as someone who threatened their um, economic model. They were already mm. in trouble. Uh, they were moving onto the internet, and here was this publisher with enormous impact, with great sources, who was able to protect their sources, um, and. The world was interested in Julian, whereas, you know, you you didn't have that kind of interest or um, you didn't have that kind of interest in the, say, the uh, the editor of the New York Times. Most Mm. people wouldn't know the name of the editor of the New York Times, but they do know the name Julian Assange, editor of Mm. WikiLeaks. So this was like a, a real um, break with, with how things had been done until that point, point. Um, mm. and the press, the mainstream press, the legacy press, didn't like it.
1: Yeah, I can imagine not. Uh, incumbents typically don't like disruptors, right, which this sounds a lot like that to me. WikiLeaks effectively succeeding by proving the value of its work to the world and I guess thereby jeopardizing the economic models of some of these established players. Um, That's interesting. Well, and obviously that parallels Bitcoin right there, right? We always talk about the value of proof of work. So uh, kudos WikiLeaks once again for doing the work that no one else was doing. Um, Can we talk a bit about your personal life and marriage? So you and Julian began your relationship in 2015 um and went on co- to conceive two children in secret that were born in 2017 and 2019 and you and Julian were married in, on March 23rd 2022 in Belmarsh prison um sounds like an extremely challenging <laughs> <laughs> personal uh, saga like are there particular moments of challenge or triumph that stand out for you when you reflect on your relationship with julian
0: well i think the fact that we've managed to form a family and uh get married in spite of all these circumstances uh has been triumph in itself uh, okay. we have two beautiful sons um they're uh the little one's about to turn five and the older ones, uh, six and a half, and uh, you know, they're they're a source of relentless joy for both of us. But you know, I mean, the personal and the and the uh, look for 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 Julian, uh, there was a a real attempt to destroy every aspect of his life every single aspect all his communications all his even before he was taken to the high security prison of Belmarsh where he is now inside the embassy where he had initially political protection and then there was a change of government um, and a change of attitude and basically a uh, strategy to try to get him to leave voluntarily i.e. make it so intolerable inside the embassy that he would have to leave um that's a really really oppressive situation you have to be mentally extremely resilient and Mm. um to resist that kind of thing because if someone controls your immediate environment who you can see who you can't see who you can speak to you know Mm. um if you can open the window all these things uh that can really get to you but Julian, um, I don't know. I think he's he's extraordinary, really. I don't know anyone who could have um, come out the way he did. Which was, you know, he was he was uh, in a bad way when he came out of the embassy, but he was still um, surviving and fighting, and then inside Belmarsh prison the first period there the first year was extremely difficult and then COVID hit and there was a lot of isolation and Mm. uh, a friend of his inside the prison killed himself and you know it's it's been pretty uh it's been a very very uh difficult um what 13 years now of of him not having his freedom but he has found ways to cope and to resist and part of that has been, uh, I think, our finding each other um, and uh, forming a a union of uh, love and support. And um, although it's personal, it also feels like an incredible act of defiance, because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one area where, um, where, where that's just between him and me and Mm -hmm. and our kids right uh so the moment of our our wedding actually really felt like a a a moment of triumph not only because we had it was quite a long journey to get there to get permission uh initially they were stalling the prison was stalling and not really giving us reasons why they're stalling and then um, we finally got the um, register to come in, and we were able to give notice. And then um, finally, a date was given. And then there was a, two, a back and forth with the prison in relation who uh, in relation with who could as, uh, assist the wedding. Mm. In relation to um, whether we could have a photographer or not, uh, we were denied a photographer. We were told only six people could assist including our children um finally the day came and it felt like we it felt like we owned Belmarsh prison on that day I mean it really felt like we had achieved something incredible which was to completely recontextualize uh that place and in terms of the people who were interacting with us on that day, everyone was like excited. This was, you know, this uh, hadn't, uh. there hadn't been a wedding in Belmarsh, I think in like 20 years or something. Uh, everyone was excited. The press was outside. I was wearing this Vivian Westwood um, bespoke wedding gown. That was uh, incredible. I mean, um, yeah, it was it was really special. And you shouldn't like underestimate how difficult it is to to kind of bring a a a human element into a place like Belmarsh, Mm. which is built to dehumanize, isolate, uh, um, remove you from all your human connection and your feeling of kind of normalcy and of and of things moving. Mm. Mm. on you're like in this mm. you're isolated and you're in like a time capsule whereas the world just moves on and when when we got married it was like the world came to belmarsh mm. um so yeah i would say that the wedding was that was a triumph for sure
1: that's beautiful uh, just the idea of turning a prison into a wedding chapel i mean um, bringing that touch of humanity, I guess, into an institution that's premised on dehumanization sounds like like quite the triumph. Um, congratulations to you both. That's really cool. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers: 36,025, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system, with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send chamber encrypted messages, even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin Chambers today for friends, family and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Okay, so not only are you Julian's wife, but you're also a key member of his legal defense team. Um, Could you just perhaps describe the nature of some of the legal battles you've been engaged in on behalf of julian um and then have there been any positive outcomes or, or progress made uh in this in this effort to free julian
0: julian's case is is really quite simple he started wikileaks which is a publishing organization wikileaks has been incredibly successful published the most groundbreaking leaks in journalistic history i don't think that's Uh, disputed Uh and um, the backlash is not because uh, WikiLeaks was unsuccessful but because WikiLeaks was incredibly successful Uh and there is an effort to try to um, turn Julian into a deterrent to stop others from um, following the example not not simply the model, but the uh, the courage to publish, because actually there's a there's a really interesting. It's a short article uh, by Jack Goldsmith, who was his assistant um, attorney general under a Republican administration. I can't remember which. But he's like a First Amendment scholar at Harvard, and he said that you know actually WikiLeaks, the U.S. press has become uh, WikiLeaksified or something like oh. that. Um, mm. It's called the WikiLeaksization of the American press, oh. and that is to say that actually the the technology that WikiLeaks pioneered, what he brought to journalism, the um, encrypted uh, uh, Dropbox, the use of Tor um, of encrypted chats, which you know in twenty ten was was. Um, quite specialized and now you have other technologies that, that use encryption, even though anyway, we know um, there are vulnerabilities and so on, but it's become kind of normalized. And the other aspect was uh, that WikiLeaks introduced uh, the partnerships between the organizations when you have big data sets in order to maximize the impact, maximize the um, ability to investigate stories and so on. So these two um, aspects are now uh, mm. pretty mainstream. All the big newspapers do it. Mm. Uh, but that's what WikiLeaks pioneered. So what is it that WikiLeaks uh, represents differently? And that is the courage uh, to publish the the most significant um, leaks so um, war crimes, um, uh, the uh, publications about the, the Hillary Clinton campaign and the lead up to an election. And actually, it's maybe controversial in some quarters, but there was a lawsuit that was brought by the Democratic National Committee to uh, before the uh, Southern District of New York. An attempted lawsuit against WikiLeaks and the de- and um, Julian and the judge in that case ruled uh, to throw out the lawsuit and he did so on First Amendment grounds and he said, well, actually, information about a political candidate in the lead up to an election is the most significant information, the most the highest public interest that one mm. one uh, could find. the public, you know, you can't find anything that's more important than to be able to have access to information um, about a political candidate. And if a media organization holds uh, such information, it's not that they wouldn't look, there's this misconception that if if a media organization has information about a candidate, they can either publish or not publish. And if they don't publish, then they're not influencing an election. That's yeah. not true. You're also influencing mm-hmm. the election right. if you don't publish, and in fact, you have an obligation to the public. Like yeah. that's what you say you you are, um, the the kind of the champion of the public interest. And and if you possess such an I- information, then your obligation is to make it available to the public. Um. So anyway, uh, the the case that has been brought against Julian concerns uh, the Chelsea Manning leaks. So these are the Iraq war logs, the Afghan war diaries, um, Wantanamo Bay uh, detainee assessment briefs, uh, the diplomatic cables, and the collateral murder publication. The um, Those five big publications. And what is alleged is that Julian entered into a conspiracy with Chelsea Manning to publish to the public. And also that he received, obtained, possessed and communicated that information. And that is defined as a crime for the very first time. And the Espionage Mm -hmm. Act, which is what is used here, has been used for the first time against a publisher. And it's a terrible piece of legislation. It was brought in in 1917 Um, As I said, it's never been used against a publisher before, but it is very broadly worded, Mm -hmm. uh, very kind of um, very sloppy and dangerous piece of legislation. And there was a case in 1984 in which a a source um, was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Uh, His name was I have it here somewhere. Okay, so Morrison... um, he was a source. He gave some photographs to a military journal in the United in in Britain, and then got prosecuted over it. And one of the Fourth Circuit judges who who ruled in that case uh, said that you know this yes it's been used against a source, um, but it wouldn't be used against the press ever against a publisher um, because there would just be such an outcry that that would never be allowed to happen in the future. And of course, what has happened is that um, it has been used against a publisher. And there's been a progression, like in 1984, um, I think that that was one of the very first times in its 100 years history that, that uh, the Espionage Act was used against a journalistic source but under the Obama administration, in fact, the Espionage Act started being used routinely against journalistic sources. So mm. there was there was a, a real shift under the Obama mm. administration. They started expanding the scope of the Espionage mm. Act, um, and it was being used more uh, in the journalistic context than in any kind of espionage context. Mm. And then under, under the Trump administration, it went even further. And this was in the context of... Um, the obviously lots of leaks under the Trump administration and the Trump administration being um, wanting to plug leaks, basically, mm. and to set an example, um, have a, a head on a pike as, as one of the leaked conversations with James Comey, um, between James Comey and and Donald Trump, reportedly, uh, they wanted a head on, head on a pike. And Mm -hmm. so it was in that environment in which the Espionage Act was expanded even further. And Julian's indictment came in 2018. And also, I think, um, probably would not have come if it hadn't been for Mike Pompeo, who was head of the CIA at the time, who was Mm -hmm. really pushing for Julian to be not only indicted, but kidnapped, murdered, etc. The... Trump administration shifted this uh, what had previously been a consensus not to bring a case against a publisher under the Espionage Act and for the first time in 101 years um, now it did and so Julian is indicted under the Espionage Act charged 17 counts under the Espionage Act um, 175 years potential sentence uh, and the consequences for journalists not just in the united states but everywhere in the world is uh catastrophic
1: Mm.
0: because it's not just uh the fact that julian is being prosecuted literally for receiving and possessing and communicating information to the public uh the Act of allegedly communicating with a source is uh, cast as a conspiracy. Uh, It's not that the underlying facts are any different than they were under the Trump. I mean, under the Obama administration. Mm. In fact, the Obama administration had declined uh, to prosecute Julian. uh, According to the DOJ, they said he's a publisher, he's not a hacker, Um, and the Obama administration was not willing to bring a case because there was not a way to differentiate what WikiLeaks had done from anyone else. It's what they call mm-hmm. the New York Times problem. And what's happened over time is a um, an environment that has been more pro-censorship, more control of information, um, and more germane to criminalizing journalism. And ultimately, I think that's where we are. It's not it's not about the threat that it would pose if Julian is extradited you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: um down the road he's on trial in the United States no it's already there they took that step they mm-hmm. took that step and the only the only way to actually undo it and they wouldn't be undoing it entirely would be to drop it entirely mm-hmm. um, or to pardon to pardon Julian uh presidential pardon prior to him being extradited or anything like that. But anything short of that is an absolute disaster because this is now the status quo. And Julian has been imprisoned over this for four and a half years. He's not being held in the UK over anything else. He's not charged in the UK. He's just being held in in the highest security prison um, on behalf of the United States who are denying him bail and who are happy to keep him imprisoned indefinitely or until uh, he's extradited to the U S because of what he published.
1: It's, it's really unbelievable. Um, you know, uh, just in the, in the looking at it through the lens of free speech, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And this this idea of the Espionage Act, I think, it really highlights the danger of loosely worded legislation, where you can just cast this very wide net and implicate individuals that are basically doing anything, right, and engaging in any action at all can be interpreted to, in one way or another, I guess, be contrary to national interest. And I don't, I'm not, obviously. A lawyer, I don't know the specifics, but I have heard others say this about the Espionage Act that it's just very widely worded and open to interpretation. And um, it sounds like to me, like basically a, the First Amendment is under assault with legislation like this. And, um, you know, if we lose free speech, uh, one of my favorite quotes about free speech is that, you know, the purpose of free speech is so that our thoughts and ideas can go to battle and die so that our bodies don't have to. And so when we start to lose this ability to rationally resolve disputes and conflicts, we're left with just raw power and violence. And, um, I don't know the, 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 the enforcement of legislation like this is very concerning, I guess, just for the whole structure of society um, Western society, I guess, to be more specific. Um, okay. What, when you look at things at a systemic level and given your experience, as you said, you know, at the beginning of the show, we all start out a little more naive in our view of the world and then it becomes more sophisticated over time. Given the experience you've had thus far in life, What are the systemic changes necessary to rein in state-level corruption? I mean, where are the big, I don't know, top one, two or three, maybe points of vulnerability that we could address that would really help uh, fix these these crimes being perpetrated in the future?
0: Well, I think uh you have to work both within the system and without it. Um, Finding solutions within the system is perhaps a losing battle, but of course um, states uh, have coercive power, the power to legislate, to fine, to uh, incarcerate and so on. So it can't just be totally ignored. Uh, But, you know, one of the things that I find incredibly encouraging about the... Bitcoin community and also other you know alternative um, cryptocurrencies is it's not so much you know the the innovation in terms of um, the financial transactions it is the community around it like mm. it is a community of people thinking how do we arrange our relations between each other in a way that is robust and resilient and um, can be built in parallel to, to the existing structures? Because I think, you know, coming from, um, you know, background in law, and I did, I worked a little bit for the UN and this and that, there are a lot of, well-meaning people who are trying to make a difference really trying to make a difference and um, and I, I I don't mean to disparage that at all, but the tools available to them within these structures are you can see it you know all the time in terms of the wars that are going on like it's completely ineffective mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but whereas uh, I think the Bitcoin community is very interesting uh, because not just the potential, but things that are being built um, uh, right now uh, mm-hmm. to solve real, real problems. Yeah. Um, obviously, a real big problem um, in terms of the power of the state is the attempted regulation of the Internet, all aspects of the Internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't understand how... Maybe there's just not a sufficiently strong um, incentive structure in the other direction, but I just find it astounding how easily the EU, for example, and the UK... And many others have had it to introduce uh, things like the Online Safety Act in the UK or the uh, um, a similar legislation in the EU and so on, mm-hmm. which has a transporter effect. Um, and things like the Twitter Files and so on, where you have, you know, a group of think tanks and universities and and Federal agencies and you know others who we don't really know who they are, who are d- making decisions over uh, speech, over individual speech into uh, uh, broadcasters, um, organizations, um, and not just domestically but internationally, and and uh, where you have you know, foreign foreign intelligence agencies asking um, Twitter to, to shut down accounts of people who are critical in the US, beyond the US, mm. it's just mind-boggling. And so you think, okay, so lots of people believe in free speech, supposedly, but where is the counterweight to this? Where is, there is just not, uh, and I understand it, like, you know, you're at university, you don't know what to do with your life. And then there are all these think tanks or whatever, or academic positions involved in moderating information. Mm. And on top of it, you can be virtuous and say that you're um, countering Mm. malinformation and Mm. disinformation and, you know, helping democracy and preventing this and that. And um where is the where where is the other you know there is no equivalent economy for free speech Mm. I mean you know there's yes there's a lot of interest in the other direction there are a lot of people who are affected there Mm. are business models that require an open dialogue and so on Uh, but there's this been this kind of proliferation of NGOs and academic sector and, and the kind of the kind of um, kind of labor market that I would probably not that I would go into it but that would you know if with my background if I was at university now mm-hmm. that's where the jobs would be exactly uh, and I don't think I would go into that but that's where the jobs are
1: that's where the um, money is, is lo- yes. are they funded by state subsidy some of these organizations
0: yeah yeah mm-hmm. yes yeah.
1: Yeah, so this is where we talk a lot about this on the show that, okay, state revenues are derived through non-consensual exchange, right? So basically, taxation and inflation are theft. But then those proceeds are used to fund things like this, censorship, manipulation of information, deception. So there's this weird relationship, like once you start institutionalizing stealing, you get institutionalized bullshit as well. This sounds like exactly what you're describing.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, anyway. Yes, you put it well.
1: Thank you. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world. My thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double blind, placebo controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating Lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, Introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement by integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near-zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com/breedlove today to sign up. And I can't remember. Maybe this was Orwell or something. He said, "If liberty, if nothing else, means the ability to tell others what they don't want to hear, and it goes both ways, right?" Like if I'm going to actually advocate for free speech, it doesn't mean I can advocate for free speech until someone tells me something I don't want to hear. Right. Like it's, you have to be mature enough to understand what free speech really means that you can listen to opinions that contradict your own. Yet that doesn't justify you crossing the line of censoring that person or stopping that person from speaking. So, um, it seems like a double standard, I guess, that you know states, at least the U.S. supposedly is premised on this whole idea of the, the First Amendment, yet once the First Amendment starts working against U.S. interest, at least the modern U.S. state, you get this whole saga with, with Julian and WikiLeaks. And um, I don't know. It's just hypocrisy at the highest level.
0: Well, it's because they can, right? Because these kinds of the means to shut down speech didn't exist before in the same way. Mm-hmm. And not just shut down speech of the person immediately in front of you, but you know, on the other side of the world or being able to uh, erect walls so you don't actually hear what someone else is saying. Mm-hmm. All these things are now possible. And of course, once they're possible, and unless there's um, a strong push to Legislate to, you know, prevent that from happening, or to preserve the protections that are supposed to protect uh, prevent that from happening. Um, then there are elements of the states that are always going to try to push for that, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, the means to shut down speech um, and everything derived from it are much more accessible, cheaper. Um, more commonplace because there have been um uh, you know shocks to the system we're in a permanent state of war we're just never at peace we're never a, a when was the last time you know the us the uk etc were we're not in a state of war it, we don't even talk about peace and war anymore because it's a permanent state of war and that means that um legislation that is introduced uh initially as if it were exceptional there's no end date to it and of course there's no incentive to introduce an end date because these are powers that become um entrenched and uh the uh state doesn't want to have to do without them it's so easy and so our our Collective and individual liberties are just um, incredibly reduced, uh-huh. for sure. Uh-huh. For sure. Uh, ten years ago, uh, I, I usually say, you know, this was this is the height of of freedom, uh-huh. of internet freedom, of journalistic freedom, and the reduction of our liberties has tracked. Uh, Julian's fate initially mm. you know encountering um he was the first one to to have uh paypal bank of america and so on mm. shut down wikileaks donations mm. uh in, in 2010 as soon as wikileaks published the Cablegate um leak within hours bank of america paypal and so on stopped processing uh the donations to WikiLeaks because WikiLeaks is do- is funded by by readers and the yeah. average donation was like twenty five dollars and it was getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a day at that point because the support was global and it was so strong wow. um, and of course so they shut it down and then all the legal travail started um, not just in Sweden but um, elsewhere and so you know, you can really kind of just looking at how at the backlash against Julian, you can see how things have progressed. He was inside the embassy. He was then arrested, taken to Belmarsh prison. Now, you know, all sorts of people are having their YouTube channels shut down and, mm-hmm. and revenue cut off. And this is commonplace now. It was unprecedented at the time. And so it's kind of a, a bit of a a model for repression, what, what has been done to Julian and it continues to be a model for repression. that's the function of his imprisonment to kind mm-hmm. of show others, um, that this is where we are, not where we're going. This is where we are.
1: Yeah. Well said, um, you know, when, when you give more power to the state, every time there's an emergency, then obviously the state is going to engineer emergencies to gain more power. So, uh, I don't, I, yeah, these temporary, what is the other quote, right? There's nothing more permanent than a temporary government solution. It just, I don't know how many times we have to be beaten over the head with these lessons of history before we start actually adapting to them. But, um, okay, we're we're close to our time here. And, you know, again, thank you for, for going through all this with me. It's just, it's just a fascinating story and um, really historic, you know, I think, whatever this paradigm shift we're going through i mean julian was definitely at the vanguard <laughs> like he you know brought the first guy through the door in many ways um standing up for basically the, basically the ethos of western civilization right freedom of speech and yet he is incarcerated for doing so um I think you said it's been four and a half years now that he's been behind bars. What can we do as individuals to help you to help his campaign to help free Julian Assange? What, what can we do?
0: Well, there's a lot that can be done because freeing Julian is correcting the course. Hmm. Um, And it should be done because uh, the case that has been brought against him is absolutely shockingly preposterous. And everyone who has looked into it uh, says so. I mean, you you can't find a single press freedom organization, a single journalist union, um, a single human rights organization. I mean, any of them, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, Committee to Protect Journalists, you name it, you know, they are all saying that this case is the most dangerous attack on press freedom globally and in the United States, and um, there is a before and an af- after, and it is uh, a this shift, uh, as I said, cannot be undone without without either a pardon or a dropping of the case, um, and. So, there are some initiatives that's been uh, a, a good progression, I think. Um, a bit, it could have come sooner, but anyway, uh, there have been 24, I think, uh, organizations that initially wrote to Biden asking him to drop it, and then to the attorney general asking him to drop it with all the kind of um, recognizable civil. Liberties names, ACLU, and so on. Um, then, uh, the politicians um, on both sides of uh, the aisle have joined forces to write Biden. So there was a a letter from Masti uh, to Biden a couple of months ago. Um, there was a delegation of Australian. Parliamentarians that went to Washington D.C. to meet with the White House, uh, to meet with the Justice Department, um, because in Australia, where Julian is from, it's, the polls show between eighty and ninety percent of Australians want Julian released. And of course, wow. Australia is a is a the most important strategic partner for the United States, mm-hmm. and they have just entered a major uh, strategic partnership um, through AUKUS. And so on. So, you know, public opinion in Australia actually does matter, even if it's um, uh, that's what those those parliamentarians came to Washington, D.C. to explain. Um, and then most recently, there's a, a congressional resolution, 934, uh, which is um, has been initiated by, by Paul Gozart. And that is urging Biden to and the administration to drop this case. And so what can people do? Well, a very concrete thing, which will have a very significant impact, is to contact representatives, your representatives um, in the U.S., asking them to um, sign on to this resolution, Congressional Resolution 934, that asks... Uh, the administration to drop the case and stop trying to extradite Julian. Um, And I think in the bigger picture, like make this case yours. This is the most significant case of our generation. It concerns press freedom, but it's much bigger than that. It's Mm -hmm. about truth. It's the ability to speak truth and to receive it too. Mm -hmm. Um, It has to do with the future of the internet. And also because Julian is a... He's a technological pioneer, but he's also a public int- intellectual that is in this space. So for anyone who's hoping not just to have a future of freedoms, um, but also of uh, a doer, you know, uh, someone who actually builds things to secure freedoms, which Julian has his entire lifetime uh, um, uh, as proof of work that mm-hmm. that he can deliver, um, he needs to be. Freed, and mm-hmm. for people who are interested in reading uh, about Julian, uh, what his thoughts are, what his writings are, he's published several books. Um, when WikiLeaks met, sorry, when Google met WikiLeaks, actually, um, that's you know ten years old now. But it's also very interesting because in that he, it's a dialogue between him and the think, CEO of Google at the time, Eric Schmidt. Mm-hmm where Julian explains Bitcoin to Eric Schmidt. And hmm. this is the first time Eric Schmidt hears about Bitcoin. Um, and it's that exchange and Julian trying to explain what what the significance is. Um, cypherpunks as well, talking about the, the global surveillance totalitarianism that is here already. Um, and this is in 2012, a year before Snowden uh, came out. And it's not historic stuff. Like it really... Um, is very current just like clips of Julian become go viral on Twitter and so on when he's talking about the Afghan war and people are like wow um it's this clip that said where he says uh, the goal is not a successful war it's an endless war mm-hmm. and what is happening is that there is a transfer of the tax bases in the US and Europe and so on into the pockets of the um, warmongers basically and mm-hmm. if you understand that then you understand the drivers for war completely differently um mm-hmm. and it's you know money laundering on an enormous scale and exactly. uh, uh, enforced through through uh coercion and violence uh, literally and anyway so that and of course um donations uh to the campaign to the legal fights it's very expensive huge um, resources have been spent and are being spent by the U.S. government to keep Julian imprisoned, and uh, we have to fight back. And that's obviously yeah. ongoing. Um, and above all, to like stay tuned in, uh, on top of things, following me, and uh, you know, just uh, keep keeping keep fighting until until Julian's free and and yeah. join. It's really a global campaign of people from all sides of politics. It's very interesting as a movement.
1: Keep fighting, we shall. Um, yeah, the freedom is definitely under attack. And um, this campaign seems to be, I don't know if it's the canary in the coal mine are just emblematic of the struggle that we're in as a species, in a way, at this point in history. So, um, Stella, thank you so much coming on um and doing this i really appreciate your time um where would you point people to find out more about you or your work is there a specific website specific social media platform that you use mostly where would you send people and we'll include all of it in the show notes
0: um yeah stella underscore assange on x twitter um that's where you'll find all the information all the latest stuff I'm I I use that a lot so that's the primary place
1: wonderful thank you again for doing this
0: thank you thanks Robert